Now, our Bible reading this morning is taken from Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 9 right through to 14. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through to 14. For the purposes of our studies in Colossians, this will probably be the last time that we read this together. Remember, this is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. Let's hear the word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Amen. We'll end the reading there. We pray God will stamp with his own uh, divine approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now this morning, we are continuing with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians. To today, my text is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. It reads as follows, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And my theme today is entitled, A Prayer of Thanksgiving for God's Wonderful Redemption. Now, for many weeks now, we have been considering Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. Now, remember, this prayer is unique. It's been inspired by the Holy Ghost. It's a big spiritual prayer. So different from a physical prayer, a material prayer. Nothing wrong with praying for somebody physically to be healed and helped. Nothing wrong with praying for material provision to be supplied. But here's something that's spiritual and so significant that it's written into the very uh, words of the Bible. What is this prayer? It's a big spiritual prayer for the church at Colossae. Remember, it's one whole prayer. And for purposes of our study, we have broken it up into component parts. And if we were to ask, what did Paul pray for, along with others, in regards to the church at Colossae when he was in the jailhouse at Rome? Well, here's the answer. We're not left to conjecture. We're not left to speculate. Not left to human reason. He prayed for eight things. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. He prayed that they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. He prayed that they might be fruitful in every good work. He prayed that they might increase in the knowledge of God. He prayed that they might be strengthened with all might. He, he, he prayed offering thanks to God for the inheritance of the saints and light. And as he prays, 
then you see that the prayer then begins to merge with the description of the generosity of the Father towards us in Christ. Not only does he thank God for the inheritance of the saints in light, it's as if his mind is scrambling, what should I thank God for? Look at verse 13. He's offering thanks to the Father for his wonderful deliverance of us in Christ. See, here's a prayer of thanksgiving for God's wonderful deliverance. And if you look again, there's a third element, uh, a third reason that he's truly thankful. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This is a prayer of thanksgiving for God's wonderful redemption. Here's another thing to be truly thankful for. You see, all of these things are connected. Think of this prayer now. Eight things, and I've taken the time over eight weeks to, to begin to open it up. And the sixth thing, thankful for God's inheritance of the saints in light. He's thankful for God's deliverance of us in Christ from spiritual bondage and translating us into the kingdom of his dear son. And here's an eighth thing. He's thankful for God's wonderful redemption. You see, many commentators and preachers don't see it in this light. But it's to me as if Paul's heart and mind is overwhelmed. It's as if he's overflowing with thanksgiving. What should I thank God for? Now, thanksgiving, as we've taught you, is an integral part of prayer. If you think of prayer, think of the word acts. Remember, it's adoration, confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. Thanksgiving is an integral part of prayer. And Paul is thinking, as I thank God, what do I thank him for? And these three things flow from his mind, out of his mouth. And with the stroke of a pen, they're written down for our encouragement and for our learning. And could I just tell you this? Eight, remember, is the number of a new beginning. In biblical numerics, seven is perfection. Eight things is the number of new beginnings. The inheritance of the saints in light. His wonderful deliverance. How was that possible? On what ground did it come to pass? Well, here's the answer. The theme of God's wonderful redemption. So that's what we're thinking about this morning. I want you to think with me the theme that's introduced here. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption. Underline the word redemption. You see, that's one of the most wonderful words in all of the Bible. I want you to think of the importance of the theme. See, could I encourage you young people to memorize this text? It's brief. It's only got 13 words in the authorized version. It's very easy. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You see... This text contains a message that's anything but brief. It's not insignificant. In fact, this one word is one of the most important words in all of the Bible. It's mentioned 20 times, starting with Leviticus 25 and runs right through to Hebrews 9. In fact, a, a sister word 
is the word redeemed. We were singing, I am redeemed. And that word redeemed is mentioned 62 times in the Bible. Starting from Genesis right through to Revelation. And in this one word, now listen to me carefully boys and girls, young people. In this one word is the heart of all biblical revelation. Here's Paul speaking of redemption. And someone has rightly said that the teaching of all of the Bible, what is it? It's the teaching of redemption. You see, this one theme is so important, it encompasses all the theology of redemption. This one theme is tied into every other thing that's taught in the Bible. If I have told you in the past, the Bible is like God's instruction manual. Remember the word, be instructed before leaving earth. What are we instructed about? Well, here's the answer about redemption. Because that one word contains the heartbeat of all and every Bible doctrine found in the scriptures. So here's the theme that's introduced. And I'm telling you it's an important theme. I want to tell you something else. It's an immense theme. See, this one word has a very wide scope and application in both the Old and New Testament. It's immense. It's not just that the word is important as a theme. As a theme, it's immense. It's a vast subject. Years ago, when I was in Scotland, living in Edinburgh, I purchased a book out of a bookstore, and it was the title that grabbed my attention. And the title was called The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. Now, I'm a bookworm, and I just love books. And I remember buying the book and thought, I'm going to really enjoy reading that. I discovered then later who the author was. The man's name was Graham Scroggy. I had no idea who that was. Could have been anybody. Uh, but I discovered then that he was the former pastor of a church in Edinburgh called Charlotte Chapel. Nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. That was just the name of the particular building where they met together for their worship service. And he was the pastor of that church, which made it all the more historical. And then I was able to go and visit that church and talk to the elders and talk to the deacons. And I told them that I had purchased the book, The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. And it's a wonderful book. And it traces the theme from Genesis to Revelation. The opening words in Genesis 1 to the last few verses of the book of Revelation. And the wealth of truth about redemption was being revealed. Now this morning, I'm not going to be able to say all that could be said about this wonderful subject. We're only preaching on the one text. And it was the late Dr. Paisley that said, when you preach on a text, well, announce it and then tell the people what you're going to do with it. In hermeneutical terms, it's called the proposition. And I want to reduce the proposition here to a single simple sentence. So I want you to know not only what the text is, but what the theme is so you can get a handle on its meaning. Now, if you read the words, 13 words, Colossians 1.14, what's it about? It's about redemption. 
You see, it's about God's wonderful message of redemption through the person and work of his dear son. Look at verse 13. What's the last few words of verse 13? His dear son. And we told you last week that that literally means in the Greek, the son of his love. And as Paul thinks of the words translated into the kingdom of his dear son, he immediately adds this, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. See, in him, we have something. What do we have? We have redemption. How is it possible? Through his blood. And what does it result in? The forgiveness of sins. Now, I've already urged you to memorize the words. I've already told you there's a wealth of meaning here that's, that's immense. It's a vast subject. We know so much about redemption. We sing about redemption. We pray about redemption. We, we're thankful to God for redemption. But I'm, I'm going to make another statement. The truth is we know so little. And the truth is this morning I know so little. Even after being your minister here for over 20 years about this theme of redemption, this is an immense theme. And we should pray. You should pray this morning. Lord, teach me. Help me to learn. Lord, be my instructor. You see, we just don't want you to come and go from the place of the holy. And although that's your duty, on, on the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We just don't want you to come and go from church without it impacting upon you, without making you think. At least having something so that if someone was to ask you later on tonight or maybe tomorrow, say at work, and a work colleague comes along and says, Well, what were you doing yesterday? Uh, well, I, I was at church. Oh, right. Well, what did you learn there? What did you hear? And you could say, Well, I heard about redemption. You might even be able to point them to the text. Think of this text. Think of this theme. I want you to tell you something else this morning. Not only the theme that is introduced, but the truth that is instructive. Let's think about the meaning of the word redemption. What does the word mean? As you hear the word this morning, as you have sang, I am redeemed. What does that convey to your understanding? What thoughts arise in your mind? You see, it's important that we have a working definition in our minds. We need an idea as to the meaning. Here's 20 references with the word redemption in it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 62 references to the word redeemed. What does it mean? John Owen, one of the old Puritans, gives, I believe, a very good working definition. I'm going to simplify it. The delivery of one from captivity and a life of misery by paying a ransom price. The delivery of one from captivity and a life of misery by paying a ransom price. That's the meaning of the word redemption. It's a release from captivity by the payment of a price. It's also connected to a recovery obtained by the payment of that price. In other words, the recovery of a lost inheritance. Now, this is true of people. 
This is true of property. A classic example is the redemption of the children of Israel out of Egypt. I've already told the children, some of you adults were listening, a very historical incident that the Lord himself often refers to throughout the generations. In fact, as he deals with his people, he points them back and back again to that moment when they were literally and historically delivered out of Egypt, out of a life of slavery, high by the power of the blood of the Lamb. Even Peter, the apostle Peter, he took up this theme. This is what he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He said this. Think of the words as we read them together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And you see, Moses said this in Deuteronomy at chapter um, 7 and 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for ye were the fewest of all people but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt? Do you see the connection? Listen again to one final reference. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 15. And he says, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this day, this thing today. See, what's it all about, redemption? It's the release of a people from slavery and bondage through the payment of a price. And that price, in this historical incident, was the blood of the Lamb. And we could talk about many other stories. The wonderful story of Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Ruth the Gentile being brought into the house of bread, falling in love with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, who was a type of Christ, and he fell in love with her. What is the story of Ruth? Four chapters in the Bible. What's it about? It's the story of redemption. And I learned that through the unfolding drama of redemption, that book written by Graham Scroggy many, many years ago. We could talk about Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 has to do with the year of Jubilee. Listen to this verse, Leviticus 25 and verse 24. It says, And in all the land of your possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. See, even the land was to be redeemed. Not just people, but property. And it's built into the legal civil code of the uh, land of Israel. Here was a provision. A A man could buy back his land. A man could buy back his property. If a brother was fallen in hard times or himself, uh, the family inheritance, it could be brought back. You see, it has to do with release. It has to do with the recovery of people out of slavery on the payment of a price. It has to do with recovery, people who had lost their inheritance being restored on the payment of a price. And spiritually, God's inheritance is 
being restored to us through our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus, and the payment of a price. You see, let's get the picture here in our minds. The picture is of being in the slave market of sin. The Bible teaches that we're sold under sin. It mentions here in our text the word sins, the last word. Who do we sin against? Well, there's two worldviews. There's a secular worldview. We're no better than animals. We have no ultimate purpose. We have no eternal destiny. There's no God, and there's no accountability to that God. Uh, so we didn't sin against anybody. Then there's a scriptural worldview. Because we're image bearers of God, we were in Adam. That image became damaged and marred. Uh, by virtue of being in Adam, we inherited the guilt of his first transgression. We uh, had uh, inherited polluted hearts that love sin and hate righteousness. And that's exactly the teaching of the Bible. Remember the psalmist said, Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And here's the necessity, boys and girls, of why we need redemption. In a spiritual sense, we're, we're sold under sin. We're slaves to sin and the devil. We're in spiritual bondage and darkness to sin and sin. And we learned that from verse 13. And what do we need? We need to be deliveranced from the dominion and the darkness of our sin. How? How could we be released? How could we be recovered upon the payment of a price? And that price was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of redemption. Now, very quickly, think about the message of redemption. Turn over there to Psalm 49 with me, and let's read a couple of verses. Psalm 49. Psalm 49, and we'll read verses 7 and 8 and 15 together. Psalm 49, let's hear the word of God. It says in verse 7, Psalm 49, verse 7, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. Verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. Now we're thinking about redemption, not in an historical sense or in a physical or literal sense, but in a, a spiritual sense. And you think of the power of redemption as we unfold the message here. It says in Psalm 49 and verse 8, the redemption of their soul is precious. You see, no man can provide redemption for himself. If you think of the words in Psalm 49 verse 7, none of them, speaking of men, can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Now that's very important. It's not by any means. It's not humanly possible for a man to provide spiritual redemption for any member of his family. Not even a man at the highest level could do that. Man elevated to the highest office, the king, the judge, the prophet. No, only God can procure redemption. Isn't that what the text says? But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. So you've got to think of the power of redemption. You've got to think of the price of redemption. 
Spiritual redemption is only procured by the sacrificial death and the blood shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. The emphasis here is in whom we have redemption through his blood. See, it's through his blood. Now, modern texts of the Bible, the ESV, NIV, for example, leave out the blood. They minimalize the blood sacrifice. They, they leave the blood out of its message. Read the new versions. Those three words through his blood are not actually there. And you see, there are some preachers today that tell us, well, we're redeemed by the death of Christ. But it doesn't say through his death, does it? It says through his blood. Now, I, I say this respectfully. Listen to me carefully. What if the Lord Jesus had just been thrown off a cliff, say from the top cliff at Capernaum? What if he'd been run over by a chariot driven by a furious Roman soldier? What if he'd just have died of natural causes or died as a result of an heroic tragedy? Say he died in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he was praying, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood, uh, and his very pores of his skin opened up and began to ooze blood out? What if he took a heart attack and just died in the garden? I want to tell you there'd be no saving virtue in that death. Because the death of Christ is not the issue. The ground of redemption had to involve the shedding of precious blood. Remember the lamb in Egypt. It was slain and the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts. Even if the lamb had been slain and the blood hadn't have been applied, there'd be no deliverance that night for the firstborn. You see, the Lord Jesus had to die by the death of the cross. He had to die by the shedding of his blood because a death that didn't result in death by the shedding of blood is not the ground of redemption. Redemption is on the meritorious ground of the shed blood. We sing, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And there's many references where we could connect redemption with the shed blood. And here's one of them, Colossians 1.14. Another classic would be Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. It's real, precious, shed blood of Christ. And that's foundational here. I want you to think not only in the message of redemption of the power and the price, but think of the person, his dear son in whom. Do you see the connection? The son of his love. You see, only the only begotten eternal Son of God could provide spiritual redemption. Jesus Christ is eternally the only begotten Son of God. That involved his incarnation. That involved his virgin birth. He was uh, brought into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had a real true flesh and blood body. He lived a sinless life. Just like the lamb was spotless, so Christ was spotless. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. He was a, a, a near kinsman to us in that sense. Bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Why? Because the Bible says in Titus 2 verse 14 that he might redeem us from all iniquity. See, Christ is God. God among men. 
our Emmanuel. And there's a perfect harmony here. Look at Colossians 1 verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? He's speaking of Christ. How can anybody deny the deity of Christ? How can they deny his eternal sonship? How can they deny he's the only begotten son of God? You've got to think of the person. Let me tell you something else. Think of the procurement of redemption. You see, all that God is in his essence and his essential nature, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the ransom price to his heavenly father. Christ paid the price to his father. And in the payment of the price, those that are sold under sin can be released. And they can go free. And not only are they released and set free, but there's the recovery of all the lost inheritance that they had in Adam. What they've lost in Adam is regained in Christ. And that's a whole subject by itself. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. What was lost in Adam? True righteousness, true holiness, true knowledge. We have now gained and recovered by virtue of being in union with Christ. And that's what it means. I am redeemed. We have been released from the slave market of sin, no longer slaves to sin and Satan. And, and now not only have been we released, but we've begun to recover all that's lost in Christ. Think of the preciousness of redemption. The redemption of their soul is precious. Why is it precious? Because we've been released from slavery. We have been recovered. And it's a faint foreshadowing of the whole doctrine of salvation. Not only the message of redemption, but very quickly think about the manifestation of redemption. What does he mention? In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You see, he's just mentioning one thing here. When we think about the manifestation of redemption, there's four things actually involved. Let me just mention them to you. There's a true freedom. We're delivered uh, from the guilt and power of our sin. Um, God purchased us from the slave market of sin and released us and set us free and brought us to experience a true liberation in Christ, freed us from the, the guilt and power of our sin. See, the law, remember, condemned us to death. But the Lord himself, he calls us to deliverance in him because he has paid the ransom price. Free from the law, free from its curse, free from its condemnation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, or, or sorry, Romans 8 and verse 1, it makes a tremendous statement. Uh, it, it tells us there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Remember Paul's already taught there in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, a wonderful truth. This is what he says. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, there's a true freedom. Freedom from the guilt and power of sin having mastery and domination over us. Not only is there a true freedom, but there's a true forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sins, what does that mean? If I could put it this way, um, sins are carried away. Think of the rubbish that's put outside your door every week in the bin. 
the, the refuse disposable officers, young people, they come and they remove it. They, they carry it away. Uh, think of another aspect. It's covered over. Think of another aspect. It, it is cancelled out. And those three thoughts, carried away, covered over, and cancelled out, they, they involve the true message of forgiveness. So there's a true forgiveness here. All the black vileness of our sin has been put away because God has carried it away. He's covered it by the blood. It's out of sight. He's cancelled it in the sea of forgetfulness. There's also a fullness here. Because in Christ there's not only a release but a recovery. Not a partial release, not a partial recovery, but a full recovery. The Lord Jesus Christ inherited all these blessings for his people. Therefore, it's impossible for us not to receive the fullness of this inheritance if we're in Christ. Let me tell you something else. There's a future here. There's a pledge of a glorious security. The Bible even talks in Romans 8, verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that. Not only is our soul going to be redeemed, but there's a redemption of our body. You see, the resurrection of Christ's glorious body guarantees our resurrection because we're in Christ. See, that's the key. In Christ. There's the teaching. The truth that is instructed here. Understand the meaning. Get hold of the message. And think of this manifestation. Let me close this morning. The triumph that is invested. If you go back to our text, I want you to just look at these words as we finish. In whom we have redemption. Think of the words we have. Now Paul is thinking about the experimental outworking of redemption in his life. In whom it's a reference to Christ, his dear son, the son of his love. We've already emphasized that. There's an obvious statement of fact here. The minute Paul mentions his dear son, it's as if he's blown away in his mind. So he has to add this little thought, led of the Spirit. Remember, he's giving thanks to the Father. And he's thanking God for God's wonderful redemption. Because Paul's thinking of that experimental outworking of the spiritual redemption in his own life. He's thinking of his own experience in whom we have redemption. That theme, redemption, is in the mind. Here's a truth that I have meditated on. Redemption, oh, what does that mean? What's its message? How's it manifested? And here's his testimony that he mentions. We have this. See, let me finish. This is a present possession. We have it now. Paul had it in the jailhouse, even when he was suffering persecution for his faith in Christ. You see, he had assurance of salvation. He was assured. He could sing, I am redeemed. He was saved now, and he knew it. He, he knew that, yes, he would find the fullness of it in the future. But he was living in the glorious reality of it now. You see, in Christ it's pledged to us now. It's sure and certain. And it's on the ground and basis of what Christ has done. Christ is sinlessly perfect. God was pleased with his once and for all sacrifice for sin. He was satisfied with that offering and shed blood. He raised him from the dead. Christ won't fail. And we who are in Christ won't fail either. We won't forfeit heaven. 
Because we're in Christ. It's a present possession. Released from spiritual slavery. And a recovery of a lost inheritance. And it's all in Christ. It's not only a present possession, but it's a powerful possession. See, if you think of those words, in whom we have. If I could take out the word whom and put the word Christ, in Christ we have. Do you see the strength of that? In Christ. By virtue of being in union with Christ, what do we have? Oh, this is an entirely new subject. We, we have a federal union. God only deals with us in Christ now. No longer deals with us in Adam. He's now dealing with us in Christ, our covenant head. It's a, it's a spiritual union through the work of the Spirit and the new birth. It's a, a living union. It's a union to do with life. Think of the branch and the vine. Where does the branch get its life from? It gets it from the vine. Cut off the branch and the branch dies. Rejoin the branch to the vine and the branch begins to live. It's a mystical union. There's a mystery about it that we can't fully understand. Or grasp in our head what it means to be in Christ. It's a total union. It's an eternal union. It can't be broken. Now, our union with Christ is a sermon all in itself. But this is what Paul is thinking about. This is a, a powerful possession in whom we have redemption. Let me ask you this morning. What testimony have you got? We were singing, I am redeemed. Is that true of you? Have you grasped its meaning? Have you got hold of that message? The power of this redemption. The price through his blood. The person, it's God's dear son. It's been procured by his death. And it's precious. Have you got a hold of that? And it's manifested that you've got freedom, forgiveness, a fullness, and you've got a future. And it's all in Christ. And that's your triumph. That's your testimony. In Christ we have. It's a present. It's a powerful possession. The Lord bless you this morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. And may the Lord take these few thoughts in this very important subject and open it up to our understanding a little better.